My name is Annie Philpott, and I'm the founder of The Pleasure Project, and today I'm going to tell you everything you ever wanted to know about pleasurable, safer sex, but were too afraid to ask. But before I do that, before I get into that, I'm going to tell you about a sex toy. Some of you might have guessed and may have seen that this is a female condom, so it also prevents unintended pregnancy, stops you getting a sexually transmitted disease, and that's what The Pleasure Project is all about. Um, we think that the sexy can be put back into safer sex. Hi, this is Karin Weiss and welcome to the first episode of the Medicus Mundi Switzerland Health for All podcast. I'm your host and I look very much forward to this new adventure with you. In this episode, we talk with Anne Philpott, who is the founder of The Pleasure Project and our first guest in the Medicus Mundi Switzerland Health for All podcast. Hi, Anne. It's a great pleasure having you on the first episode of our podcast, Health for All. Thank you for having me. It's really exciting to be here and be talking about pleasure. Your work seems to be all about pleasure and sex. Can you tell us a bit more about your daily work? Well, the Pleasure Project was founded to put the sexy back into safer sex. So we say we put the sexy into safer sex because sex education is rarely sexy and erotica is rarely safe. So what we do is to really hit a, a massive blind spot that there is in public health, which is that pleasure is rarely spoken about. And yet people will say that pleasure is a you know, and know that it's a key motivator for having sex and yet addressing it when it comes to actually sexual health or discussions of sexuality is a massive blind spot and it's rarely discussed. So we do a whole range of work. We advocate for sexy, safer sex. We do training for organizations who want to improve the way that they do their sexual and reproductive health work. We do quite a bit of research about what makes pleasure in sexual health work and how it's more effective. And we also bring together very different communities to actually make sure that they share their expertise. So we bring together um, academia, um, we work with sexologists, we work with the public health world, and we also work with people working in the pleasure industry. Would you actually agree that we still have a long way to go to demystify that we are actually sexual beings? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it constantly stuns me that we take, or in, in the world of public health, which is the world that I know better, we work very hard to avoid discussions of pleasure. I mean, you know, knowing that pleasure is a key motivator for sex, knowing that the, you know, burden of sexually transmitted diseases is huge. I mean, a billion people have a, have a sexually transmitted disease in the world today. We know that HIV AIDS is still a pandemic, really affecting particular communities in the world. And yet when you go to an AIDS conference, there's rarely any discussion, I mean, if any, about pleasure and how to make sure that pleasure is a part of sex education. Why do we struggle so much with having pleasure? Because we are all sexual beings and it's actually our birthright being able to enjoy pleasure and we deserve it. Good question. I mean, I've thought about this a lot because I find it so stunning. And I think it's because we have a whole history of um, health which is very biomedical, which focuses on stopping disease and death. So, you know, as I say, it's all about death, danger and disease. We have a kind of history of international development that has focused on saving people, 
So they have a focus on, you know, the consequences of sex and, and quite sexist notions of saving women as victims. And we also have sexism and patriarchy, which struggles with women's sexuality or women finding pleasure. So it's very gendered as well in that if you're a woman who might seek to have good, safe sex, there's a huge risk attached to that. Not just shame, not just the names you'll be called, but also a real risk of violence and death. And of course, you know, we know that the consequences of that are things like young women not getting sex education, access to family planning, or indeed female genital mutilation. In one of your speeches, you said you are passionate about prevention. Sexual pleasure is often associated with not using any protection against sexually transmitted diseases, such as HIV or becoming pregnant. So how do you combine the concept of pleasure and prevention? Oh, very easily. I mean, I again think it's really stunning that sex is used and sexuality is used to sell so many things like the marketing world will sell toothpaste on how sexy somebody looks or a car on how sexy it makes you feel you know they'll sell everything on sexiness and yet when it comes to condoms we sell it on preventing disease which is you know, not what is foremost in your mind when it comes to having sex. And actually, a condom is a sex toy or can be a sex toy or should have been promoted as a sex toy. And I think there's lots of ways that um, a condom or can be like the ultimate signal that you are about to have penetrative sex or it can be you know, people can be shown how to put a condom on in a sexy way. It can be like the green light in a certain sexual encounter that of what's going to happen next, or it can be talked about in a very, very sexy way. Yet, but because public health has focused on a very biomedical approach or has focused on preventing death, it's missed that almost entirely. I met you at the Women Deliver Conference 2019 and I heard you saying that the idea of Pleasure Project started at the AIDS Conference 2000 in Durban. When you listened to a talk by a man who could not say the word sex, even though he was talking about it in a way of transmitting HIV. What happened within you at that moment? Oh, it was a light bulb moment for me. I think it was... After many years of becoming more and more frustrated, I mean, I worked in condom promotion for a long time. I'd been promoting the female condom. And then I started, I was really excited. I'd got to go to global AIDS conferences. It was like a really exciting moment for me as a young activist, somebody working in prevention. I'd done sex education in schools. And so I was really in awe. And I sat in this session where this very formal researcher, he even had a cravat on, was talking about how vaginal microbicides were being invented and how they were being designed. And I thought, wow, this is really exciting because at last we'll have a product that will be like a lube. There's a lot of potential here. And then he started talking about insertive probes and receptive cavities and the clades of different HIV strains. And I sat there for about 30 minutes thinking I must be so stupid because I don't understand what he's talking about. You know, I'm this young person going to an AIDS conference. And then I finally realized that he was talking about penetrative sex, but he wasn't able to actually use the words that, you know, even the medical words to describe penetrative sex, and he needed to describe it in this very sort of laboratory technical way. 
And at that moment, something inside me snapped and I thought, I'm going to found an organization that's actually going to talk not only about sex and not pretend it's an airborne disease, but actually talk about pleasure and the reasons why people have sex. And so at the next AIDS conference, I put forward a panel on pleasure and safer sex. And we had a whole range of speakers talking about, you know, pleasure after an HIV diagnosis, talking about how to promote pleasure. The Sonagachi Project spoke about their work around um, promoting safer sex with sex workers in India. And, you know, it was great. It was really, really exciting. And then we showed some sexy films as well. So it, we had to lock the doors because we had so many people wanting to come in. So I thought I must be onto something now. Because... At that time, I'm sure you faced a lot of prudishness, not only among the public health sector, and you showed a lot of strength and courage to stand up for your beliefs that pleasure actually leads to safer sex practices. What made you believe that pleasure leads to safer sex? Because I'd worked in condom promotion and I know, you know, I'd spoken to a lot of people, particularly people that negotiate safer sex a lot. So one example comes to my mind that when I was living in Sri Lanka and working with sex workers there, when we were talking through how to promote the female condom and it was a new product at the time. So their sexual partners didn't know it and hadn't seen it. And so we talked through all these tactics about how to promote it with their clients. So how did that go? Oh, great. So they went away with a whole bunch of female condoms and then they came back the next day with little handwritten notes from the men saying fantastic smooth and hot great they wanted more and so what they'd done was be amazingly creative and there's a huge wealth of expertise in groups of people or people who negotiate safer sex more regularly and it happened to be sex workers and what they did was things like you know, this, this new sex toy that we have, and we talked through these, these tactics, you know, it, it might make a noise if you're really good at sex. And then the men obviously loved that. And the fact that it was bigger, they said, Oh, it's bigger because you're big. So like, there's lots of ways that they like were able to kind of, you know, negotiate safer sex or, or talk in a dirty way around or, you know, so-called dirty way, but talk in a sexy, erotic way about how to negotiate safer sex. And then also, um, you know, the outer ring of the female condom. Many people have said that that kind of creates extra friction during sex and that can be very stimulating. So it can be like a clitoral stimulator. And so that was already in my mind. And I thought all of this wealth of amazing knowledge is not being discussed at AIDS conferences. And, you know, the, the pandemic was just really beginning then. And so I had this, suppose these two sides of me that was thinking, this is, you know, really urgent that we get prevention right, that we invest in prevention well, and really urgent, you know, it's not just about the fact that it's either fun or it's sexy. It's actually, People think, oh, yes, you know, Anne's talking about this fun thing, but it's really serious because a lot of resources going to HIV AIDS that are not being used effectively. I mean, between 2000 and 2015, half a trillion dollars went into HIV AIDS programs. And yet there's this massive blind spot where we're not investing in safer sex programs in a way that suits people and, and actually addresses their real sex lives. And it's just this huge avoidance of this subject. And I think those two things came together and it kind of snapped something in my mind. And I did have, I mean, it was nerve wracking standing up there at that AIDS conference. And a couple of people said to me, 
ah, your career will be over. This is like terrible that you're doing this, that you're talking about pleasure at an AIDS conference. But there were enough people that came to that session, particularly people working in HIV prevention who were keen to, you know, become more effective as sex educators or sexual health promoters who said to me, this is great and fantastic. This is exactly what we need. And so I think they spurred me on. And I think creating that community of practice amongst people who are themselves coming to that kind of conclusion is also what spurred me on. And we now have on the Pleasure Project website, this something I call the global, global mapping of pleasure. Yeah, you did a global mapping. Tell us more about it. <laughs> we, so I love it because we started off by doing a kind of simple mapping of 15 organizations that, you know, incorporated pleasure in their sexual health work. And it was a kind of simple word document. We then, um, in 2008, published something called the Global Mapping of Pleasure that had 45 organizations. And you can still download it from our website. And it's amazing. So it's, it's kind of short examples of people working in sex education, in, um, sexually explicit media, in academia, in a whole range of fields who have in some way incorporated pleasure into their sexual health work or safety into their pleasure work. And that was so popular. I mean, it was in the first year and a half, it was downloaded over 30,000 times. It was extraordinary that we then went on to have a global mapping of pleasure on our website, which is now real time. So people can add their examples and you can go on there and you can get contact details for other people doing that work in your country and your region. And we've now got 71 examples. So it's really grown. That's like at the latest count. Oh, fantastic. Maybe we'll put it into the show notes, the link. That's fantastic. Yes. And we'd love more people to put up their examples. And I think because this is a it's really tackling a stigma and a taboo, this work. So to actually stand up there and talk about pleasure and recognize, you know, what you know in yourself, that it's really important in your life or your work can be scary. And so what I wanted to do was connect other people that are doing that. And it's a, a huge range of examples from, you know, people working in northern Nigeria, um, you know, in, in maybe environments that people wouldn't imagine they would be able to do this work to working with, um, you know, faith-based groups who actually talk about how to keep the pleasure in your monogamous relationship to sex work gr uh, groups. How does it work with the faith-based um, organization? How do you work with them to, in order for them to, to take up the, the concept of pleasure? So I think, you know, because sometimes people can assume that pleasure is about maybe having many partners, but of course, pleasure is about also having you know, one partner or being true to your, your beliefs. And so, you know, some groups have, for example, incorporated discussions of pleasure in, say, the work that, you know, so one Catholic group, for example, in the marriage counseling that you have before marriage, um, they would then talk to each part of the couple about how they would, um, ensure that they were having some pleasure within that relationship, how they would listen to their partner's needs. So, and their explanation of it to me was that also that means that you're able to continue to have a satisfying sex life and relationship. It's not just about sex life, be able to talk about pleasure and what your needs are and therefore stop maybe a desire to 
go outside the marriage. So I think there's lots of examples. We had some great examples on, from a recent piece of work that we did with um, the Dutch Family Planning Association's project called Get Up Standout in Kenya and Ghana. And the co-director on the Pleasure Project, she went and did um, some pleasure auditing with young researchers and trained those young researchers in those countries to look at where pleasure was incorporated in sex education and how it was being done. And I'm, you know, there's one great example she talks about where a sex educator was, was talking about pleasure in his work and she asked him how he had managed that. You know, this is quite an unusual conclusion to come to in the sex education world. And he said he wanted to be true to his Islamic faith because in Islam, he said that, you know, Islam tells you to talk about the satisfaction of your partner. And so he'd incorporated it into his work. Interesting, because I assume sometimes it's a cultural clash, because in many societies in Africa or Asia or even in South America, women are at risk of violence or the other negative consequences if they are seen to enjoy sex too much, because it does not go together with virginity or fidelity. And having the concept of virginity or fidelity puts women at risk of being uninformed about sexual health. And then you come in and you talk about pleasure and safer sex practices. Isn't it sometimes a cultural clash? So I think it's, I mean, it's not um, just in those regions. I mean, I think, you know, in the UK and in Europe, it's also a challenge, right? You know, we've seen in the UK that a lot more women have been dying due to domestic violence. I think it's four a week during the lockdown. Um, but I think, um, you know, this, what's critical about this is that it's about also a big part of empowerment is about women's agency and being able to express what they want. And sometimes I think it's kind of an ultimate indicator of empowerment to be able to ask for and get the kind of sex that you want and desire. And I think it can be a culture clash, um, but there's also many, many examples of um, women and women's groups who are working to incorporate pleasure in, in their work in Africa, in India, and actually leading the way in terms of those examples. You know, I think actually in Britain, for example, we can be bit more puritanical than some of the examples I've seen. You know, India, for example, had a huge range of ex of um, examples featuring in our global mapping of pleasure. And sometimes it's kind of that argument about cultural clash comes from a particular perspective of international development or, you know, what is actually a colonial history of sexuality um, that's been kind of imposed on other cultures. So, I think, you know, we also have to look at the history about the way that discussions of pleasure have been used to kind of silence women or control women um, in terms of also development narratives, you know. Yeah, true, true. Let's talk about another sector. You also work in the erotic entertainment sector. And safer sex practices are hardly seen in porn movies or it's often hard for sex workers to negotiate safer sex practices even though you mentioned several good examples. What is your experience in this field? So I think that the um, the world of pornography or sexually explicit media is huge. There's many different elements to it, uh, you know, as there are in m many industries. There's elements of it which are, you know, like Pornhub, 
big multinational organizations who don't adhere to any ethical code necessarily, who, for example, um, thrive off piracy, who don't pay performers. And then there's a, a whole world of feminist erotica, of ethical porn, as it's called. Um, and I think there's, you know, very different people who, who inhabit different spaces there. And, um, we've worked with, um, performers who are also striving to create new types of content. So ethical content that's performer driven. So is actually about performers themselves being the producers of that content. And, um, for example, we're working with a research group in the UK who are testing different types of messaging for STI prevention. And so we made a few short films that are explicit films, but that are respectful, are feminist, but also are about the relationship of the couple that then talk about their own, say, condom use and when they discovered condoms and how they use them in a sexy way and then show them in use. And that to me seems to be a new type of content. There's actually much more effective and we're testing that. So there's a, such a huge division between sex education that will never be explicit in that way or won't um, aim to turn people on, as it were, or be sexy and then sexually explicit media that won't be safe. But there's a huge opportunity to bring the expertise of those two worlds together and create a new type of content that can be as appealing. And I think this becomes even more urgent as the internet grows globally. So now 50% of the world's population has access to a mobile phone. The the amount of downloads of sexually explicit media dwarfs the type of access of to sex education. If you look at some of even the most popular sex education websites, it's dwarfed. So basically, sexually explicit media and pornography has become sex education. So you, you are now, you know, if you're growing up in an area of the world that didn't before have, say, even TV or radio, you now have access to a mobile phone and you can simply type in words into a search engine and then find yourself in a porn site with like multitudes of images and acts, which then is a kind of kangaroo jump into a world far beyond what you would have had before. And we need to address this. We need to address this in terms of safety. How can we go about it and and how can we put more messages about safer sex practices into these worlds? So I think we need to, first of all, address it by providing content. The public health world has to stop putting its head in the sand about this and actually think about content that will be appealing but respectful and ethical and then also safe, such as the films we made for this trial in the UK. But also it needs to educate people and provide education. And I think the, the the porn world, the pleasure world also needs to do this about the fact that this isn't real life and that this is fantasy, but also give people an understanding of what it is. And because content is being so dominated by this kind of lowest common denominator, you know, I think also we need to enable and educate people that there's a different type of content. And there are some great examples out there from the pleasure world who such as an organization called sex school who are actually performers themselves who are providing sex education but they're doing it in such a way that they're 
educating people also about their health, but in a fun, sexy way, but also giving them information that they want about the kind of sex life that they might want to have. And I think there's, you know, we need to bridge that gap between those two worlds a lot more. Otherwise, we just risk being left behind because, because that internet train has left the station and the porn train has left the station. So let's go back to the beginning where we talked about sex and pleasure. In one of your statements, you said, our vision is a world where pleasure-inclusive sex education and sexual health programs are the norm and recognized as both best practices and effective. How can this vision become a reality? What is still needed to embrace this vision? Yeah, good question. I mean, my vision is one where all sex education would be pleasure-inclusive. And so it would be seen as odd if you were running a sex education class where you weren't talking about pleasure. And I think that's more honest and it's more realistic. And otherwise, people who are getting sex education don't believe the rest of it if you don't talk about it holistically. But also that there would be, um, you know, a, a recognition in the pleasure industry that it's responsible to show condoms or talk about safety. So I think on both sides... Um, there's a change needed. And how we realize that vision? Well, we've come a long way. I started the Pleasure Project in 2004, and it used to be, like I say, a big shock for somebody to stand up and talk about pleasure at an AIDS conference or a reproductive health conference. It's now becoming more accepted, and other organizations are also running those sessions. It's fantastic. Although at the virtual AIDS conference this year, there was only two sessions on pleasure, but at least there was another one and UNFPA ran one of the sessions. So that's really exciting. Yeah. And I remember you were saying that it took about 10 years, the first 10 years, nobody came or listened really to you. And the last five years, things have changed and people have been really interested in, in hearing more about your work. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think people listened, but they didn't necessarily see the importance of it. So, you know, and recognize that it's also about making sexual health programs more effective, but we've come great strides. I like to say we're kind of on a pleasure wave now, and I'm super excited that, you know, a number of other organizations are also promoting pleasure. There's about eight international NGOs who are now also talking about pleasure, and that's really exciting. But also a big advancement has been that the World Association of Sexual Health um, launched a pleasure declaration last year at their global congress. And they're really like a normative agency for sexual health. And I was, you know, excited to be asked to be part of that. And I'm part of their, their pleasure technical group. And, um, that will be ratified at their global congress next year. And that will be, you know, that's a, a kind of, it follows on from their Declaration of Sexual Rights that was adopted quite widely. And so that pleasure declaration really adds some legitimacy in the world of sexual health to say this is really important and why it's important in the context of sexual rights. Because it's not just about improving health, as important as that is. It's also about realizing rights and agency and it's really firmly embedded within that. So it's about a right that should be available to us all to experience pleasure in a consensual way. And so that will be launched and we'll have a series of technical documents that will be accompanying that, um, that will really back it up in terms of rights, in terms of gendered um, notions of pleasure, in terms of privilege and pleasure, because there's also been a history of certain groups being more privileged around pleasure. So 
maybe those groups that can, you know, are more seen as the social norm. So married heterosexual couples, for example, whereas other groups kind of would be seen as, or have not had the benefit of that um, access to pleasure privilege, as I like to call it. So that will all be part of that declaration. And that's really important. And then we're also working on some research with the World Health Organization. So we're doing a systematic review about pleasure inclusive sexual and reproductive health work and how that impacts on sexual health outcomes. So that will be really important also to kind of make the case. We've continued to add in these different elements of research to make the case. And we're also hoping to work on a series of kind of global guidance on how to incorporate pleasure into your sexual health work. So not only having the declaration and the evidence, but actually if you want to do it, making sure you're doing it in a way that also respects other sexual rights that is most effective. Because What's exciting is I'm seeing more and more people and groups who are saying, ah, pleasure is important. I want to do it in my work, but not necessarily doing it in a way that might be most effective, for example. And so we want to put some guidance out there about what we've learned through these examples in the global mapping, what we've learned from the evidence. So those are other key steps on the way. And then I hope that will also mean that more people will join us on the pleasure wave to start to incorporate pleasure into their work and it will become more normal and a standard part of sexual health. Anne, I wish you good luck with your project and to your team, of course, as well. And I thank you so much for being on this podcast. Thank you so much. This is really interesting. And I always love talking about all these different elements of the Pleasure Project's journey and where, where we're headed to. And it's really exciting to see more interest and more organizations joining the Pleasure Wave. So thank you. That was the Medicus Mundi Switzerland Health for All podcast with Kachin Weiss. You can listen to it on iTunes, Spotify and on our website. To spread the message, please leave a comment, share and like it. Stay tuned. The next episode is about the power of storytelling, young people and their needs.